Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Amy Swearer. And I'm Giancarlo Canaparo. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Today is the first day of SCOTUS 101 with your new hosts, Amy and me. That's right. Giancarlo and I are on our own. The training wheels are off, so helmets on everyone. Buckle those seatbelts. We're we're going for a ride. You will, of course, uh, have noticed a few changes, like our revamped theme music at the beginning and and some revamped introductions. But we do plan on staying true to what this show has always been. Uh, And while we will certainly miss our longtime host and friend, Elizabeth Slattery, we will try to make this transition as smooth as possible. Before we begin our regularly scheduled programming, however, we're joined today by, dun, 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 our boss, the Lord Defender of the Mies Center, the right, the honorable, the overlord, Mr. John Malcolm. (laughs) That's not what they print on his business cards, but trust us, it is his official title. (laughs) What they print on his business cards is something a lot less exciting, like vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government and director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. But to us, he is El Jefe. John, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you. I like Overlord. I'll have to uh, see whether that fits on my new business card. But look, I'm I'm really excited to, to formally introduce the two of you uh, as the new co-hosts of this show to our listeners. Uh, so I actually thought I would, I would just say a few words about your backgrounds. Uh, so Giancarlo and Amy are both legal fellows in the Mies Center at Heritage. Uh, Giancarlo, or as some, uh, some of us like to call him, GC, uh, is a native of California who graduated from UC Davis, and he got his law degree at Georgetown Law School. He was in private practice for a while at Skadden Arps, and he clerked for a federal district court judge uh, in Florida. While at Heritage, Giancarlo has written on a variety of subjects, including criminal law issues, the propriety of nationwide injunctions, and also kind of a fun fact is that he is an accomplished equestrian and a classical pianist. Uh, Amy is a native of Nebraska. She graduated from the University of Nebraska, where she was, by the way, the star goalie on the soccer team. And she got her law degree uh, from the University of Nebraska Law School. She's written some cutting edge articles on the Second Amendment, birthright citizenship, and other topics. Uh, In fact, she's become one of the leaders of the conservative movement on Second Amendment issues. Uh, She recently testified before Congress, and her opening statement went viral and has been viewed over a million times uh, and counting. Uh, So Giancarlo, Amy, I am so delighted that you are taking over as co-hosts of the show, and I cannot imagine the show being in better hands. Thanks very much, John. We are also very excited. Uh, we are definitely excited, and, and we appreciate you coming on. Uh, though I will say that the success of my goalkeeping career has been dramatically overstated, uh, but I, I, I do appreciate that shout out. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us, John. Turning now to Supreme Court news, uh, Justice Thomas has been in the news because he has been such an active questioner with the new format, uh, which brings to mind that on Monday, PBS is going to be airing a documentary about Justice Thomas, Justice Thomas uh, in his own words. Amy and I have both seen it. It's an exceptional documentary. And if you've watched oral arguments or listened to oral arguments these past couple weeks and enjoyed the sound of his resonant baritone, uh, you will very much enjoy the documentary. I, I'm with GC here. I, I cannot recommend this documentary enough. Uh, Part of it is it's just a very well put together documentary. Uh, But then there's also the excitement of just being able to listen to Justice Thomas, someone who is notorious for not doing a lot of speaking events, not doing a lot of speaking at oral arguments even. Um, So it it is a a very great documentary. And uh, hopefully everyone can watch it uh, or record it and watch it later. We will have the link to the show or the link to PBS's uh, announcement about the show in the description to this episode. Turning to oral arguments, this week was the last week of oral argument this term, and we had some juicy cases. Amy, tell us about McGirt versus versus Oklahoma. So McGirt versus Oklahoma, if you recall, the appellant in this case was convicted in Oklahoma state court of some pretty horrific crimes. And now decades later, he's arguing that Oklahoma actually had no jurisdiction here 
and that he needs to be retried in federal court because basically a third of eastern Oklahoma isn't really Oklahoma at all. Uh, the argument is that Congress never disestablished this area. It's this sort of quasi-reservation of the Muskegee Creek. So as you can imagine, one of the main themes at oral argument in terms of questioning from the justices was the practical effect of holding that Oklahoma doesn't have jurisdiction over this area. So not only were there concerns about hundreds of criminal cases uh, that were prosecuted in not Oklahoma that would have to be retried in federal court, uh, but there were also concerns from some of the justices about other effects of this ruling, uh, such as on the uh, adoption or foster care cases uh, that have been uh, that have had rulings on them in state court in the affected area, and also now having hundreds of thousands of non-Creek Indians because this territory includes uh, the city of Tulsa. Um, but but having hundreds of thousands of people who would find themselves subject to tribal laws and some of the implications of that. So that was one of the main themes that you saw really come out from oral argument. Another case or two cases we heard uh, this week were in faithless elector cases. These are uh, electoral college members who don't vote the way that their state says they have to vote, given the popular vote. Uh, the court in oral arguments seemed concerned that if they allowed faithless electors or, or they prohibited states from uh, themselves prohibiting faithless electors, that electors would be free agents and that they could sow potential chaos, especially in tight elections. But the court was also a bit adrift because the Constitution doesn't have anything directly to say on this. So they struggled a bit with those concerns. One of the other cases that uh, was argued this week was Our Lady of Guadalupe, uh, which was consolidated with St. James. This was the, the series of cases that dealt with the ministerial exception to the employee-employer disputes, um, so when an employee serves in a ministerial function. Uh, this challenge in this case is, is essentially about figuring out that test for determining when an employee serves in a ministerial capacity and when he or she doesn't. And I think what you saw in the questioning was a lot of the justices really struggling to figure out how to frame this test in a way that excludes janitors, uh, but also can distinguish between different types of teachers with different functions or coaches who are ministers and coaches who are simply praying before a game in a de minimis way. So you saw a lot of hypotheticals being thrown out, um, especially by Justice Sotomayor. You also saw questions from some of the more conservative justices about whether courts are even supposed to look at or question the, the difference between significant and insignificant religious functions in the first place. And finally, you also saw some concerns about how to frame a test of this sort in a way that equally protects minority religions. And so really, th this became about the, the wording and the framing of a test in a way that makes sense. And you saw just a lot of struggling from the justices here. I, when I was listening to these oral arguments, Amy, I had the distinct sort of flashback to the lemon test. And it strikes me that what's going to come out of this case, the opinion that we're going to get, is going to be some kind of balancing test. And I wonder, is it is it going to be like whenever the court gets involved with religion like lemon, where you get an unworkable test. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, and that really is the challenge. And I, and I think the justices seem to be aware of, of that, um, you know, trying to avoid a balancing test that really just ends up coming back to them time and time again, because it's not really workable in the lower courts, um, or you just keep having, you know, circuits that are developing different ways of interpreting that test. And, and so I think that's really what they're struggling to figure out. How mm. do we avoid this? Well, it looks like we're probably going to get another really gnarly balancing test in the last set of cases, at least one of the two. These two cases are the Trump tax returns case. One, a subpoena for his tax returns from a House committee. The other from a New York district attorney. The takeaway from these cases, I think, is that nobody's really going to win. The court struggled mightily to balance the interests here between Congress and the presidency, between state criminal investigatory powers and the executive. And my sense is that the opinion, whatever it's going to be, is going to be a vague balancing test that really gives little guidance to judges in future instances. I think 
that this case is going to be unique. It'll be as unique as the Nixon one was. It'll cite to the Nixon one. It won't follow it perfectly. It's going to be, it's it's going to be a bit of a mess, is my guess. What do you think, Amy? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you saw this in a couple of oral arguments this week, where the the, the court has really found itself in a, in a messy place, and I think the questions and the the lines of questioning really reflect that um, in, in several of the cases. Um, but moving on to just general thoughts about how oral arguments went this week. Uh, GC, I know you've had some thoughts about the format and how well it's working. Yeah, I think that this, uh, for those of you who aren't aware, the, the Supreme Court has been doing uh, a new format for telephonic oral arguments where every justice has a set period of time to answer, uh, to ask questions. So they're not interrupting each other like they usually do during oral arguments. And I think it worked very well. It showed the justices really working together on complex issues. It largely eliminated the sniping between them that you can sometimes see when they're free to interrupt each other. And the more civil style brought Justice Thomas into the mix, which was really remarkable, not just because we all enjoy listening to the sound of his voice, but it showed how much his questions drive the discussion among the other justices, which goes to show that even when he's not speaking, he's definitely a thought leader on the court and someone whose opinions the other justices are responding to. I think that some advocates don't like it. Um, because it prevents them from getting a good feel of where the real tension is between all nine justices. But my sense is that this works better for the justices themselves. And I think it gets non-lawyers and non-court followers involved in uh, engaging with what the court's doing. And I think that's a win. Yeah, you know, I I think uh, to, to just work off of your last two points there, uh, there, there's a sense in which this does seem to work better for the justice justices, but may be a bit frustrating for the advocates. I I really think you saw this in the tax return arguments where you just ran into the chief cutting off uh, answers to questions in a in a sense of really trying to keep the time. And that really affects the ability of those advocates to answer questions um, because, again, questions uh, in, in the time frame that each justice gets for questions are, are limited. So if a, a justice takes up you know, it pull, pulls a Justice Breyer uh, and and has a very long-winded question uh, that's really a statement, but at the end may have a question mark, you know, and, and you really only leave the advocate 10 seconds, 15 seconds, um, sometimes it felt like even less than that to answer the question, um, it, it can get really frustrating for those advocates and I think really undermines the point of oral arguments. Um, but I think that's also something that can get worked out with time. Um, so we we will see. Uh, and then also this idea of fostering civic engagement. I think what we've seen and what I've noticed personally with, with this sort of access to live stream is that I've started having interactions with people in my own life who normally, you know, don't care at all about what's going on in the Supreme Court, who have you know, stumbled across oral arguments and now are listening to them in a way that they haven't before and now have, you know, thoughts and opinions and are engaging in this um, that has been really interesting. Yeah, I like it. I'm a fan. I will see if the court keeps this up going forward, if they uh, live stream arguments when they return to the courthouse. So moving on to opinions, we did have one opinion this week. This was not one of the more high profile cases, uh, but it was Lucky Brand Dungarees v. Marcel Fashions Group. This ended up with a unanimous opinion by Justice Sotomayor. Basically, uh, in this case, two jeans companies with similar trademark slogans have been through several rounds of trademark litigation spanning two decades. In this case, gene company number one argued that gene company number two couldn't invoke a certain legal defense in this round of litigation because it hadn't raised the defense in an earlier round of litigation. The Supreme Court held this week that gene company number two could raise the legal defense uh, because this round of litigation involved a different issue and a different claim for remedy. Not the most exciting case, but as we come uh, increasingly towards the end of the term, we hope to be getting some of the more juicy ones in the next couple of weeks. Next up on the show, I interview the legendary Judge Marty Feldman, a longtime district judge in New Orleans. We talk about his career his friendship with Justice Scalia, and his time on the FISA court. Judge, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. 
and for asking me. So, Judge, rumor has it you are an avid baseball fan. That that rumor is is absolutely correct. I was I was born and grew up in St. Louis. Uh, came to Tulane when I was seventeen, but I have been a diehard baseball fan uh, ever since my youth because St. Louis was and still is a uh, uh, a very uh, baseball is central to sports life in the city. I trust the Cardinals are your team. Actually, uh, I I hate to admit it. They they were. um, In fact, uh, when I was a kid, um, a friend of my my mother was a huge baseball fan. And one of her friends was Stan Musial. So I Mm. got to know him. But uh, um, my my friendship with the Scalia family converted me to the Boston Red Sox and my time on the FISA court converted me to the Washington Nationals. So there is still a special place in your heart for the Cardinals then? Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Now on the Red Sox, I heard that the Red Sox actually once played an important role in you hiring a law clerk. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell me that story? you're getting better information from your spies than I ever got from mine in all my <laughs> years. Yes, on her resume, under current interests, which is something I usually look at first on an application, she said, quote, and this is a direct quote, I live and die by the Boston Red Sox. <laughs> so I granted her an interview, and as she walked through my door in my room, before she could even sit down, I said, you'd better be good. And she said, why is that? I said, because you're hired. <laughs> anybody, who has, anybody who has the guts to do it. And Harvard told her not to do it. Huh. I, I've heard that career departments often tell you to sort of whitewash your resume, to take out anything that sort of stands out. But I've heard from a lot of judges that that's a bad idea. Is that you, you would share that opinion? Yeah, I, I you know I like to I, I like to be able to tell something about the applicant long before uh, they walk through the door. And when she um, when she put that under current interest, I thought, oh, uh, this has got to be a good one. And uh, <laughs> not only was was she great, she was one of my Katrina law clerks. Now, Judge, I'd love to talk about uh, your legal career. Was law school always uh, in the cards for you? Did you always know that was your plan? No, no, I'm uh, I'm a complete misfit. I um, I I graduated from high school in in uh, Clayton, Missouri, when I was 17, and I came to Tulane thinking that I wanted to be uh, an archaeologist and a linguist. And in fact, to this day, I still read archaeology and biblical archaeology uh, as sort of a hobby. But I, uh, I'm also not given to great uh, dexterity. And I realized early on that if I were out on a dig, I would uh, come upon uh, Lucy. I don't know if you know Lucy is the skeleton that put uh, Homo sapiens back about four million years. That's right. Uh, I remember that. Yeah, well, I jokingly knew that I would come upon Lucy and step on her skeleton and crush her. (laughs) And and so in the uh, in my well, I guess well, I grad I've finished college in in three years, but in my in my I guess the second half of my second year, I decided I didn't want to be an archaeologist. I shouldn't be an archaeologist. Languages I was good at, and I stayed with languages. But um, I decided I wanted to be a poet. And so I switched my major to English literature. And um, I managed to write a lot of poems. And I even got one published in a magazine that promptly went bankrupt. (laughs) Tell me about your interest in poetry. 
Are there subjects in particular that interest you? Uh, laughing at society. Um, I've I've always I've, I've always had a, a kind of a sense of irony about uh, the hypocrisy of people. So I've, in fact, uh, years later, the poem that got published uh, is called "They Killed Cock Robin." And Tell it's me about about it. it's about empty-headed uh, people, you know, at cocktail parties and who stand for nothing important. Well, a friend of mine in New York belongs to a club of billionaires, and uh, he, he found out about this poem. And this club has an annual black tie dinner in New York, and so they invited me to come up and read the poem, <laughs> which I did. Uh, but I happened to look up in the midst of reading the poem, and they were kind of frowning. <laughs> and I thought to my, I thought to myself, oh. They must not uh, be very impressed. And then it dawned on me, the poem was about them. Right, they're your target audience. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so it's called They Killed Cockroach. At any rate, I, I decided I wanted to be a poet. And uh, now I'm finished uh, with school. I have a, um, uh, a major in English, a minor in uh, Spanish, uh, several years of Latin and an awareness that I was not destined to ever become an, ar an archeologist, even though I'm still interested in it. And my college roommate, who to this day I have remained in touch with, was go on his way to med school. And I asked him, uh, Mike, what am I gonna do with my life? I'm 19 <laughs> years old. And he said, quote, uh, I don't know, Marty, I think maybe you ought to go to law school. And I asked him why. And he said, I don't know. I think you just look like a lawyer. And I can <laughs> tell you, I can tell you at this, at that very moment, I walked in front of a mirror. I looked at myself in the mirror and I can tell you to this day what I was wearing uh, when I decided I was going to become a lawyer. And I oh. went over to Tulane and got accepted and, now you know the rest of the story. So did you agree with him? Did, did you look like a lawyer or was he, was he insulting All you? I, I can tell you what I was wearing, but I don't know if I looked. I guess I did. I, I had on a, a white Brooks Brothers uh, shirt, a, 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 a gray herringbone jacket, and uh, very uh, a, a charcoal gray trousers. It, you know, it was the old preppy days. <laughs> so I, I, I guess I... I guess I kind of agreed, but, but the more important part of the story is, is that uh, from the from day one in in contracts class, uh, I fell in love with the study of law, uh, and uh, I never looked back. I've always said I've never worked a day in my life. That is a great thing, and there are some people who find that, and I'm curious. I, I, I mean, in my mind, the writing of poetry and that create creativity. It doesn't really look like legal writing to some point, to some degree. Do you find that judicial writing satisfies that creative writing urge? No. Uh, I've always said that uh, the only people who are worse butchers of the mother tongue than doctors are lawyers and judges. <laughs> so after law school, you clerked for Judge John Minor Wisdom, right? I was his first law clerk. Um, I I didn't know uh, what I was going to do. I had uh, I had been had interviewed um, for a position in the legal department of a company, a tiny company then. It's now Freeport MacMoran, and I knew I wasn't cut out to be a, a, a you know punch a time clock and be a company guy. Um, I'd interviewed with uh, three or four different law firms, but I just, I, and frankly, I wasn't sure I was going to stay in New Orleans. I had, off, I had a job offered from the, uh, the, at the time, the Honors Recruitment Program at Justice Department in D.C., and 
I was kind of interested in that, but I had a little MG, and I didn't know how I was going to get all my clothes in my MG and drive to Washington, so I didn't take that. And I had been in uh, young rep- college Republican pol- politics, and at the time, Judge Wisdom was was then in private practice, and he was a very famous, very famous uh, antitrust lawyer. And he was also a very famous Republican because there weren't many in the South. Mm-hmm. And he had he had been a a very close friend of President Eisenhower's. And I had kind of come across Judge Wisdom as a college Republican and liked him. And I heard that he had been um, appointed by Eisenhower. And so I applied and and interviewed. Matter of fact, I was 20 minutes late because I got caught in a rainstorm <laughs> with my top down on my little MG. And uh, I thought, oh, my God, he's he's not even going to let me in. But we hit it off. And I, I think he kind of liked the fact that I was dripping wet and 20 minutes late. <laughs> judge, judge had a great sense of life and a great sense of humor. At any rate, he um, uh, he offered me the position and I became his first law clerk and it was uh it was a it was god's blessing because he was was and still is to this day like like uh, my father closer uh, than my father so i, I trust was, that was, was there was a close mentor mentee relationship very yes we were every um every morning i would go to his house pick him up in my little mg uh, his wife would make us breakfast, and then we'd go to work. And it was uh, it was a very exciting time for a young kid like me because I was his law clerk during the Brown versus Board of Education integration oh, wow. days by the lower courts. Um, and the Fifth Circuit was <laughs> probably had the heaviest docket uh, because it 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 spanned from Florida to Texas at the time. Mm-hmm. And Judge Wisdom made quite a name for himself working on those cases. Can you tell me about that? Yes. Uh, uh, he uh, he was not... Uh, he, uh, he, this is going to sound strange. He had... I don't, I don't think he ever had a social philosophy which led him to the results that he he came to. He was uh, born an aristocrat of a of a, a, an old Virginia family uh, that dated back to the 18th century. Um, he went to Washington and Lee, uh, when, uh, and his father went to Washington and Lee. Uh, under when Robert E. Lee was president of Washington and Lee. So uh, I never had the sense that he was uh, maybe like some of the judges today, unfortunately, uh, an advocate personally for one Mm -hmm. point of view or another. He simply decided those cases on the basis of what he thought was fair and reasonable and what was faithful to Brown versus the Board of Education. He He got a lot of static for it. And of course, I got a lot of static because I had been his law clerk uh, during that time. Um, a lot, a lot of people in the Republican Party were kind of suspicious of me because I had clerked for him. Oh, that's interesting. Did um, did his philosophy end up um, affecting the way you decide cases? Do you find that you follow in his footsteps? Have you reinvented or or changed how he did things? Uh, the only the only thing that I do, which is something he did, and I hope I hope I'm not the only one, but uh, is I I do what is fair and impartial, and he had a sense of strong impartiality, and um, I try to I try to to live that. How do you, when a case presents an issue that's very partisan or involves a a hot political issue, 
how do you uh, stay impartial? How do you avoid subconsciously maybe getting pulled into the political uh, whirlwind around a case? I have a lovely study here at my very old house. And in fact, I'm in the study right now. And uh, alone at night is when I write all my opinions. Um, I've had the same-sex marriage a, a case before Obergefell. Um, mm-hmm. I knew I'd probably be very be, get a lot of criticism for it, but it, it, I, w- I felt it was fair and impartial, and it was what uh, Justice Kennedy and Justice Roberts had written before me. Um, two years after I was appointed, um, I had a very famous high-profile case in involving supposedly the KGB and a Russian um, uh, grain ship here in the port of New Orleans. I, I, the, I ruled against uh, Ronald Reagan, the president who appointed me. Um, got, a lot of, got a lot of criticism for that. Um, held Barack Obama, the Secretary of the Interior, in contempt of court. Wow. Uh, got a lot of got a lot of, uh, of criticism for that. Uh, and um, I, I just, I'd like to think that I have the same respect for the robe mm-hmm. that Judge Wisdom taught me to have. And that's how I approach cases. I, I try never to think about the consequences to me personally. And I think most people would agree if you ask them, they would agree with that. Mm-hmm. That must be difficult when you're under a lot of pressure, especially media scrutiny to. Yeah. Well, um, if I had, uh, if I didn't uh, want that kind of life, I wouldn't wear a robe to work. That's fair. And speaking of robes, I've heard, is it true? You have uh, Judge Wisdom's robe. It hangs in your chambers. Is that right? I I not only I not only have his robe in my chambers. Uh, when I took the oath, he swore me in. Huh. He took his his robe off of himself, and he put his robe on me. Wow! What a moment. Many years later, one of my closest personal friends is Judge Pryor from the Eleventh Circuit. Is that Bill he Pryor? Bill, yes. He also clerked for Judge Wisdom. When he finally got a Senate hearing and got confirmed, I flew to Atlanta and swore him into the 11th Circuit, and I swore him in wearing Judge Wisdom's robe. Wow. What a great story. You were also very close friends with Justice Scalia. Is that right? Justice Scalia. Justice Scalia was my my closest friend of 35 years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and how did him you, every day. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, I can only imagine. I, 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 I've never met the man, but I have heard that he was the sort of person you can the, never forget. He was the best. He was a, an incredible friend and incredible human being. And a, uh, one of the, one of the most, uh, impressive minds I have ever, uh, encountered we met here at my house um he was on the dc court of appeals he'd been on the dc court of appeals for about a year and a half in uh, april of 84 i was on the district bench i'd been appointed uh, in november of 83 and um, my late wife and i were giving a a a party for a, a lecture series that tulane uh, did every year. They, they might still do it. I don't know. But we were very involved with it uh, when I was a brand new judge. And um, that particular uh, year, eight, in 1984, the the uh, panelists were Arthur Miller, the law professor, mm-hmm. Fred Friendly, the chairman of CBS, and Antonin Scalia on the D.C. Court of Appeals. Tulane asked uh, my late wife and me to give the opening party uh, for the the, uh, the for these three guys. Um, 
Well, I'm not, uh, people will probably tell you that I'm not the most sociable person and I don't like crowds. There were about 50 people here and I went out on the porch, Justice Scalia or Judge, then Judge Scalia hadn't, hadn't shown up yet. And so I went out on the porch of my house and this little beat up car, I guess the, a rent, rental car, pulled up and parked in front of my house. And this little guy got out and waddled up to the front porch. <laughs> and his first, my first words were Judge Scalia. And he looked at me and he said, Judge Feldman. And it was love at first sight. <laughs> we came into, literally, we came into the house. We went off into a corner. I didn't, I, I hardly talked with anybody else that night. My wife wanted to kill me. And, <laughs> from, and then, of course, uh, two years later, he went. Uh, he went on the Supreme Court. I'm. I'm going to tell you. He might not want me to do this, but I'm going to tell you a story about my former law clerk Ajit Pai, Please. now chairman of the Federal, Federal Communications Commission. <laughs> when, uh, when, when Justice Scalia went to the Supreme Court from the D.C. Circuit, this was in the, the, the back when uh, I don't even think computers were in existence. Uh, if they were, they were brand new. And Nino and I would write back and forth to each other. And whenever, and Ajit was my law clerk, one of my law clerks then. And whenever a an envelope from Ju- Justice Scalia from the Supreme Court came to Chambers, Ajit would, unknown to me, Ajit would go to my secretary and ask her to save the envelope for him after I opened the envelope and took the letter out. <laughs> Do you know what he did with him? I have no idea. <laughs> I have none whatsoever. But, but uh, Nino and I, um, Nino and I were, were the, we were closest, close, closest of friends for 35 years. We, we talked, oh, I don't know, two or three times a month. And uh, we traveled together. Uh, he stayed here at my house when uh, he loved New Orleans. Whenever he and Maureen came came to New Orleans, they stayed with me. And uh, it was just one of those, uh, one of those very, very special uh, relationships. Do you have a favorite memory or a, a favorite story? Yes. <laughs> well, they're, they're, I guess they're two related stories. Uh, 11 years ago yesterday, uh, I was baptized, and he was my godfather. And uh, um, when I first decided, we, we talked all the time about this. It wasn't anything new to him, but I finally decided I was going to do it, and I called him, and I asked him to be my godfather. And the first words out of his mouth were, God damn you, Marty. And I thought, what? 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 Wait, where is that coming from? God damn you, Marty! What do you mean? He said, "I've been, I've been trying all my life to get into heaven, and you're going to slip right in ahead of me." <laughs> and the, the other, the other, the other half of that story, you have to back up uh, several years before I had actually decided to study and be baptized. Okay. Nino was, Nino loved hunting and fishing. And he had a, uh, he had a very close friend here. In fact, the brother of the walking dead nun, Sister Prejean. Uh, her brother, Louis Prejean, was Nino's big hunting buddy. And one, one year, um, I was in chambers and I think it was still in the late 80s. And he called me and he said, look, I'm going hunting or fishing, whichever with Lewis. I'm here in Louisiana, but, uh, courts in recess. I've got to go back to Washington, uh, for court. So I'm not going to get to come to new Orleans to, uh, to visit and stay with you. But I just wanted to call and say hello, which I said, Nino, you really like all that stuff? He said, what do you mean? I said, all the mosquitoes and the crocodiles and the alligators 
and the snakes and the flies and the sun. You like all that? And there was this silence. And then he said, quote, Marty, that is so Jewish. And he hung up on me. (laughs) (laughs) So how did you convert from um, Judaism to Catholicism? What was the impetus behind that? Uh, I I think uh, the good Lord was bringing me along ever since I was a kid. I can, I used to, uh, I used to go to midnight mass when I was in high school with friends. I can still smell the candles at St. Louis Cathedral mm. in St. Louis. And so when I came to school, I, I uh, basically went would go to mass with friends, and um, the first time I decided to take instructions. Uh, was in 1954. I was I was 20, and okay. I went to see a priest. Uh, I went to see a priest about that, and um, but of course the 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 gin bottle overruled the priest, and so it took um, uh, about 50 years more before I I finally went back. Sorry, did you say the gin bottle? Yeah, I, I lived in New Orleans. I was like I was a 20 year old in law school in New Orleans. I was. I was more interested in going to Bourbon Street than than in, <laughs> in than in taking instructions. But but the first time I I thought seriously, I was twenty years old. Okay, and was your friendship with Scalia part of that process? Very definitely. We talked about it all the time. He sat here in my study with me. Uh, we would uh, he would he introduced me to C.S. Lewis mm. and. Um, uh, just and then you know whenever I was with them, if they were here in New Orleans or if I was in um, Washington or if I was at their beach house at the Outer Banks, uh, we always went to mass together. Of uh, C.S. Lewis's books, which one or ones did you find most instrumental in your uh, conversion? Well, there are three actually, but uh, it, for different reasons. Um, my all-time favorite is through tape letters because I, I think it it uh, it laughs at the frailty of human beings and and that's why I wrote they killed Cock Robin. <laughs> um, I I just finished a, well the, the the second one that that actually he gave me is called Mere Christianity, mm-hmm. which I like. Judge, I'd love to switch gears uh, for a minute, and I'd uh, talk about uh, some of the things you've done during your career. Um, specifically, you recently completed a seven-year stint on the FISA court. Can you talk to me yeah, a little I bit did. about that experience? Well, it was a great honor. Um, um, it's another Scalia story. One day, uh, he called me out of the blue, and he said, uh, you want to be on the FISA court? And I said, sure. And the next day, the chief justice called me and I was on the FISA court. And so when I when I went off, when I had my what I jokingly refer to as my non-person lunch, when you rotate off, the chief has a lunch for the person going off the court. And I've jokingly referred to it as the non-person lunch. You become a non-person again. (laughs) Uh, But I but I told him, I said, uh, Chief, I want to thank you for putting me on the court, and I want to thank Nino for giving you my name. <laughs> that's how I—that's how I got on the court, and uh, it was—and uh, I didn't hesitate. I said yes immediately because it—it—I uh, have a sense of duty, and uh, for me, it was a, just another way to serve my country and to work with um, with literally some of the greatest. Un, unsung, unknown heroes uh, in our country. Um, judge, uh, and and the judges, the judges who I uh, I I served with um, were the best of the best. Mm. How did being a FISA judge differ from your regular court work? Well, um, you. <laughs> It was rare that you heard both sides of a, of an issue. That's <laughs> um, interesting. How a, do you make a decision uh, in that case? Well, the the questions, the issues that 
confront the duty judge. You know, we we sit alone. We don't sit together. The mm-hmm. only time we even get together is twice a year at uh, semi-annual meetings for briefings and field trips and stuff like that. But we, the only way uh, you know what another judge has done is if uh, a renewal comes up, if something's about to expire and you are now the duty judge and the, the agency involved needs to have the, the, the uh, project extended for another 90 or however many days are allowed by law. So you, you, you don't know, you, don't, you, you work alone. And if somebody's on duty right now, somebody's on duty 24-7, and uh, it, it, you might, it might be in the middle of the night, um, uh, it, it, it's just hard to say. But it was, uh, there's a staff of uh, around 12 people, all with um, intelligence backgrounds and uh, backgrounds in law. Okay. And the uh, the the application is is uh, worked up by them, and then it comes to you. And uh, occasionally, uh, occasionally there's an amicus um, if the sitting if the sitting judge wants an amicus, or if the staff recommend an amicus. Who are the amicus? Well, uh, there was one uh, when I was involved, and he was uh, he was appointed when Tom Hogan was the presiding judge in D.C. I never knew the guy. I did. I had one uh, hearing in in uh, technically what they call their courtroom. I had one hearing, but it was just with the Justice Department. Uh, lawyers and the intelligence uh, people because I was concerned about something and I didn't want to sign off until I uh, was more satisfied. So I never worked with an amicus, but there was one that Judge Hogan named and I believe, I believe it was an ACLU guy, but I never, I never knew him. Now I think there are more than one, but I'm not sure. Without of course, disclose any classified info. Do you have a reaction to uh, the recent reports about FISA abuse? Well, um, I think it's, I, I don't want to minimize it. I, I think it's very serious, but like like everything else in life, if if there's a bad guy and the bad guy wants to do something bad, um, it, you're going to have a hell of a time trying to stop him. Mm. And the way I view what happened um, is uh, bad guys wanted to do bad things, and they concealed it. I know three of the four – I was not involved. I know three of the four judges. I worked with three of the four judges, and I can tell you they are the best of the best. Mm. And the one I don't know, Judge Conway, uh, comes – is, but with a very fine reputation. So uh, all I can think is, sadly, is if a bad guy wants to do something bad, he or she is going to find a way to do it. And a bunch of bad guys, disappointingly at the FBI, wanted to do bad things, and they did it, and they hit it. And uh, I, I have never talked with, with any of the four judges or asked them about it. Uh, Rosemary Collier was presiding judge when it happened. And she was the first judge. She uh, entertained the original application. Uh, She's one of my best friends and I have never said one word to her about it. Mm. So that's all I, you know, I just bad guys doing bad things. And if they want to cover up something, they're going to do it. I know the question you're going to ask me, <laughs> is there a way to change that? The yeah. thing that I fear most, the thing that I fear most right now is that Congress is going to tinker with it and uh, weaken it. I, mm. I, I really fear that. I, I, I would just remind everybody that the FISA court 
was the result of an abuse by the CIA. I don't, I don't know lot. that history. Tell me about that. It, in, uh, it involved, I don't know whether it involved the assassination or the planned assassination of a South American uh, leader. And Frank Church from Idaho, a Democrat, was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And Warren Berger was Chief Justice of the United States. And Berger came to church with an idea about sticking an independent federal judge in between the executive branch and the intelligence service. We're the only country in the world. England has tried to do it and has not been able to. We are the only country in the world that has an impartial arbiter between the executive branch and the intelligence service. Only country in the world. And, um, and it, it came about uh, when a, uh, I, I, don't, I think Church uncovered it himself. I mean, it was a huge political scandal. Um, and I could be wrong, but I want to say it involved uh, Allende, who was okay. a, one of the presidents of one of the South American countries at the time. But I would you know, just remind everybody that, that we are the only country in the world that, uh, that has this, this uh, institution that is uh, fair and impartial to the core uh, that sits between the intelligence agencies and the executive branch of government. That's interesting. So, I, I'm surprised it, that nobody it, else has done so. No, zero. Can it be abused? If, like I said, if 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 the bad guys want to abuse uh, uh, goodness and righteousness, mm. they will. Mm. And um, unfortunately, it happened. Um, I I won't say what I really think of the people who did it, um, but um, you can probably guess. Mm. Well, Judge, thank you for that insight into the FISA course. I know that's not uh, something that a lot of people have any experience with, and so that's really illuminating. In, in our last few minutes, Judge, I would love to ask you one question we ask all of our guests on the show. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? Uh, justice Story. Because he, uh, even though he was chief, the first chief justice, he was also a politician. He was secretary of state. And uh, I've often wondered how in the hell he could have ever been a judge when he was so political. Um, so he's one. And, of course, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes. Um, I have a soft spot in my heart for him. Quite as Quite a story. Uh, I love Holmes because he always wanted to be a United States district judge, and he always got passed over. And so uh, for him, the booby prize was the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts. <laughs> he was on that court for 12 years when Cabot Lodge, then senator and friend of his, uh, called him and said, "There was a, would you like to be on the Supreme Court? And until the day he died, Oliver Wendell Holmes, you know, this was when they used to ride circuit and they would sit mm -hmm. as district judges. And Oliver Wendell Holmes and always used to say that the most, uh, the most interesting and most fun in his life of being a, a federal judge was to be a U.S. district judge and hold court. <laughs> and I, that's, always, that's always touched me that he felt that way, because I feel that way. Well, Judge, it has been such a pleasure to chat, and thank you for uh, taking the time to be with us. I am honored, and I want to compliment all of you who uh, work with uh, in the in the trenches for the Heritage Foundation. I'm uh, I'm a big fan, and of course, I have some great friends there. Thanks very much, Judge. Thank you. Good luck.
Well, that was Judge Feldman. I wish that I could have had more time to talk to him. One of the most interesting people I've ever had the privilege of chatting with. Amy, let's do some trivia. Yes, we're on to trivia. We just have ourselves today. Uh, so we will be trying to stump each other. Um, so I'm, I'm already very, nervous. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little nervous myself. So, well, let, let's get started. All Jeez, right, hit me all... with your best shot. All right, I, I've got one for you. This is actually a throwback. We'll do a throwback question here. Uh, so this is a, a question that has been on the show before. Oh, man. Since we've been talking about innovations in the court and changes to, to some of the and, and changes within the court this year. In what year were telephones first installed in the chambers of the Supreme Court? Oh, man. All right. So there's no way I just know this fact. So we got to work through what I know about telephones, which is nothing. So I'm going <laughs> to pick a date and say do, 1920. Do we do, we do hints here? Uh, you know what? I take it back. Give me a hint. Okay, so the, well, I'll give you a time frame here. The time frame is sometime between the end of World War One and the beginning of World War Two. Oh, that's 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 a, I, you know I wasn't far off then. Uh, I'm going to say 1925. You were ten years off. It was 1935. Wow. Uh, some some justices, of course, did not welcome this change, including uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. and Louis Brandeis. Ah, see, it would have helped more if you gave me one of the justices. Ah. That would help isolate, isolate the years better. Okay, I got one for you. Since we're in the middle of a pandemic, we'll, we'll do some pandemic-themed uh, questions. When was the first time that a chief justice faced a decision about whether to hold court during a pandemic? My initial instinct is to go with sometime during the, the Spanish influenza but I feel like there there had to have been, and I know that there were different pandemics prior to that. You know, actually, your gut was right. It was during the Spanish flu epidemic uh, in specifically 1918. Chief Justice Edward D. White closed the court from October 8th through November 4. Well, I'm, I'm glad you cut me off because uh, I, I my I was going to overrule my gut and go with you know some sometime in the late 1790s there was probably some <laughs> typhoid epidemic. Nope, um, nope, your gut was right. Well, give me a half point. I feel like no, I get a half I'm point there. Give you the full one there. Okay, so uh, we're moving on to Supreme Court justices and money. The two Supreme Court justices have appeared on U.S. currency. Who? Are those justices? Whoa, this is obviously currency that I have never seen. Yeah, you are correct. Neither of these bills uh, is in circulation today. Okay, okay. Can I ask for a hint? Your your hint is uh, these are both uh, very well known justices from the earlier days of the Supreme Court. All right, I feel like. Back from the days when we were issuing $500 bills and $10,000 bills. Sure. Okay. I feel like there are some right answers here about famous justices from the old days. John Marshall. One for one. Yes. And Joseph Story. No. What, ah. you're, you're one for two, bad in 500. Uh, the second justice is Salmon P. Chase. Oh, on the, that makes the $10,000 bill. And my last question for you, Amy, continuing our epidemic theme after the 1918 Spanish flu, when was the next time that the court faced a public health-related crisis? Public health-related crisis. I might be reaching here, but I, I recall there being a hurricane. I don't know if this counts as public health-related crisis, but I know there was a, a hurricane. I'll, I'll, I'll give hit. you a... Is it, is it not a hurricane? It is, is not that, a hurricane. Okay. It, is, it is another pandemic type situation sort of I, i'm gonna go with the this recent one uh, the, just now with um with coronavirus no and, and you know this was a little bit of a trick question because this involved a synthetic disease this was the 2001 anthrax scare Oh, okay. Court, that makes sense. Yeah. The court received anthrax tainted letters and the building was closed for a week in 2001, but the court didn't stop oral argument. It just moved them to the DC circuit. 
All right. So it, did, did we end up with a technical tie here? I got a half point. You got a half point. You know what? That sounds fair. Well, everyone, that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please be sure to leave us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Amy Swear and Giancarlo Conaparo. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Thalia Rampersad, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.